0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so privileged to come and study together, and we ask that your Spirit will join us and lighten our mind. May we grow in the knowledge of your kingdom and be witnesses for you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A couple of announcements. I just want to let people know that. Um, While I was scheduled to speak for the Florida Conference Women's Retreat January 4th through 6th, 2019, that has been canceled. I explained why last week. So just if you were planning on going there to hear me on the three presentations, I won't be there as part of that. And want to let our our friends online know that if you want to make a tax-deductible donation before the end of the year, that uh, anything that comes through the mail need to be posted by the December 31 post date. So just uh, be aware of that. And now we are doing lesson number one in a new quarterly, the book of Revelation, and the title is The Gospel from Patmos. And in the introduction to the whole uh, lesson study guide, uh, in the second paragraph, there's a quote from Testimonies to Ministers and Gospel Workers, page 113, which says the following. When we as a people understand what this book means to us, there will be seen among us a great revival. We do not understand fully the lessons that it teaches, notwithstanding the injunction given us to search and study it. What's what what what's the message there? We do not understand fully the lessons in revelation is what what that message is. Does this mean there's room for us to expand our current understandings of revelation? Uh that uh, we should not be dogmatic about certain interpretations that we should allow various views to be considered and weighed in the biblical evidence. Should, should we do that? Do you find that's the case when you actually begin bringing up questions of traditional ways of interpreting things, that there's a healthy interest in looking at an alternative view? Or is there uh, usually a little bit of discomfort and perhaps fear and wanting to shut down a questions that question traditional understandings? Well, I think it's healthy for us to ask questions and evaluate the evidence and see where that leads. Additionally, the lesson points out that uh, in, Revel- in the Bible... Generally, the Bible, not the book of Revelation, things should be taken literally unless there's clear reasons to consider what's being written as symbolic. However, in Revelation, the lesson says things should be taken first symbolically and only literally unless when there's clear evidence to do so. Do you agree with that general principle? The default position in most of the scripture is this is a true historical accounting, let, take it literally, unless there's reason in the context to, to realize it's symbolic or metaphorical or otherwise. And in Revelation, things are symbolic first, and only take it literally when there's reasons to do so. So, Sabbath lesson... First paragraph says, The prophecies of Revelation were revealed in vision to the Apostle John more than 19 centuries ago during his exile on a small rocky island known as Patmos in the Aegean Sea. Revelation 1-3 pronounces a blessing on those who read the book and hear and obey its teachings. This verse refers to the congregation assembled in the church uh, to hear the message. Uh, However, they are blessed not only because they read and listen, but because they obey the words of the book. So first question, what is the blessing that one receives from reading the book? Why are they blessed? Is it kind of like a knighthood, something that's bestowed by a higher authority on their subjects for a great achievement? You've read the book that I've assigned you to read, and because you've done it now, I'm going to bestow a blessing on you, like a knighthood. Is is that what it's talking about? You read the book, God uses power, boom, blessing. Or is there some design law at work here? Some natural result that comes from reading the book? Is there there a blessing in enlightenment? Is there a blessing in knowing the truth? Is there a blessing in knowing the truth about God and his kingdom of love? Is there a blessing in that? Is there a blessing in having one's mind freed from lies and distortions? So, what is the blessing one receives from reading the book? Would it be healing of their hearts and minds as the truth penetrates and wins them to trust in God? And notice how that works. There is a blessing, but the blessing is a consequence of receiving the truth that is contained therein. It's not some arbitrary You know, well, if you you know say this prayer every day for thirty days, then God uses his power to give you better health, and God uses his power to give you more money and more wealth, and which some people think. This is very level two thinking of the the quid pro quo marketplace exchange. If I if I do something, then God will give me something back in return. That's not the kind of blessing that we receive. But the lesson says it just isn't the results. That reading, it isn't just reading that results in blessing, but obeying that results in blessing. And what does this mean then? Not just reading, but but what would the blessing be in obeying? Would that be like the knighthood? Okay, I get enlightenment if I read, but then if I do it and it's a hard work thing, then the sovereign recognizes that I've actually done what he said and the sovereign will then give me a blessing. Is that how that blessing works? Or is there a design law at work here? What's the design law? How does that blessing work? Is there a blessing in obeying your doctor's instructions, assuming the instructions are correct? Is there a blessing in that? From where does that blessing originate or
1: arise? Come on. Natural. It's a natural result. From trust in the physician. From trust in the physician. I mean, that's where the that's where the the process begins.
0: Okay, it, it it begins in trusting the physician, but the obedience that you apply because you trust your physician, you apply it. Then where does the benefit or blessing to you come from? From the fact you trust, or the or something you're doing results in a blessing. So your physician gives you some exercises to do, and you do the exercises. Are you getting any blessing from that? Yes.
2: Yes
0: from where do they come
2: it's, it's inherent.
0: from moving in harmony with the laws of health right you've moved you made a choice to apply to your life principles or design protocols that life are built upon one of those is the law of exertion if you want something to get stronger you must exercise it because if you don't use it you lose it so if you begin Operating, choosing to operate in harmony with that design protocol, there's an inherent built in blessing. You can't avoid getting stronger. Unless you violate another law. Perhaps the law of restoration. That after you expend a resource, as a finite being, you have limited energies to spend. And after you expend the resource and exercise, you must rest and recover. The law of restoration. If you don't rest and recover, a pitcher for a Major League Baseball team throws a no-hitter. Does he pitch the next night? And if he pitches seven nights in a row, what's likely to happen? Because he's breaking another law. It's not just exercise anymore. He's not resting and recovering. It's another design law. So you can't avoid the pain and suffering that comes from breaking the design laws, but you also can't avoid the health and benefits and blessings that come from living in harmony with them. So is there a blessing in obeying the commandments? Not to murder, not to steal, not to commit adultery, not to bear false witness. Is there a blessing that comes from obeying those? From where does that blessing come? What is the blessing? And from where does it come? A better life. A better life? Okay, okay. In what way is your life better if you don't murder, you don't steal, you don't bear false witness, you don't commit adultery? How is your life better?
3: Blessing comes from God because that's how he designed it.
0: Okay. It comes from God. Through what mechanism? Through God bestowing a knighthood like a sovereign on earth? Is that how it works? You do the right thing. God is counting and watching and keeping track, and therefore God uses his power to bestow it? Or does it come through the laws that he's constructed reality to operate upon? Therefore, does one have to actually give a fealty, fealty to God to reap the blessings that come from living in harmony with his laws? You may not know this. So, again, does one have to give fealty, acknowledge God as your sovereign, to reap the blessings that come from honesty, loyalty, faithfulness, kindness? Or do you get those blessings even if you don't even know about God? Oh, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because when you get a knighthood from a sovereign you don't recognize as your sovereign. You won't. Yes?
3: There are those atheists who do not believe in God but who believe in His natural laws and who reap the benefits that God has designed into this universe.
0: And do you see where the benefits and the blessings... Are they being blessed? Yes. So back to the commandment question. If you obey the commandments, is there a blessing in obedience to the commandments? From where does the blessing come? Is there a cursing in breaking the commandments? From where does the cursing come? What happens if you're stealing from your employer and your employer doesn't know at this time in human history? (laughs) Your employer is unaware that you've been stealing, but you've been stealing. Do you sleep as well at night? Do you have as great a peace inside? What happens when your boss calls you into their office? What is your reaction? Is your reaction, I'm sure they're wanting to talk, what a great job I'm doing, and you have great peace. and, and what, Or do you immediately have heightened anxiety, adrenaline surges, fear, worry, your mind's going, did I forget something, did I forget to cover something? In other words, your stress circuits are just pinging out of control, right? Even though they're calling you in there to give you a Christmas card. Isn't that right? There's no peace. This to get your mind around. There's, there's no peace in living out of harmony with God's designs. There's no peace. There's no health there. It's always harmful. What would happen? So in, in, in Romans 1, okay, here, is there a blessing in worshiping the one and only true God? Is there a blessing in worshiping the one and only true God? From where does that blessing come? sovereign, using his power to make it happen, like a fealty to a, a human king? Is that where it comes? Some imperial decree? Or is it a natural design law again at work? By beholding, we become changed. We become like the God we esteem in admire. So in Romans 1, Paul says, what, happened to the, what did Paul say happened to the people who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, who didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God? They preferred they images made with their own hands. What did he say happened to them? He became
2: like those guys.
1: Received in themselves, Their minds became darkened,
0: depraved, and futile. Why did their minds become darkened, depraved, and futile? Did God use his power from heaven to say, oh, they're not going to worship me? Okay, I'm going to harden their hearts, I'm going to warp their characters, I'm going to make their minds depraved, I'm going to use power to make it that way. It wouldn't be that way otherwise, except they've offended me and I'm going to make it happen. Or does something happen in the minds of people who worship false gods? then what would happen in the minds of people who worship the true God? Would something different happen? Would worshiping the true God result in an expansion of one's wisdom, insight, mental faculties? Would that happen? Would that be a one-time event It happened at one point in time when I was 12, I gave my heart to Jesus and I really came to love him. And then that was it. Or is it a continual growth because he's an infinite being and we're finite beings that we continue to grow. And as we worship him, we gain more and more insights and more and more wisdoms and more and more perspectives. We grow in time. Which way is it? One point in time or a growing process? Would this then require a continued study, a continued application of our reasoning powers and our heart's desire to search out and spend time with God? Is this connected then, this idea that I'm describing, notice this growth, this movement forward in our spiritual insight, wisdom, understanding, our knowledge of God in time as we apply our energies to to our relationship with God, is this connected in any way with the statement that goes like this, sanctification is the work of a lifetime see, when you hear that statement, sanctification is the work of a lifetime, does that mean that you only get it at the end of your life? Or that it is part of living. We continue to grow in our knowledge of God and his methods and continue in our spiritual maturity as long as we are alive. It's the work of a lifetime. It's what we do our entire life for all eternity. We continue to grow in our knowledge of God. And in God's kingdom, what do you think is the measure of obedience How well a task is performed or how pure the heart is in performing the task? What is the measure of obedience in God's kingdom? How well the task is performed or how pure the heart is in performing the task? can somebody have a pure heart and apply themselves to a task with all their ability, but be weak in their ability? You know, I get the example that was given, um, some time ago. The example of the master coming home and, and the servant sits and there was a, there was a servant that would wait at the gate, waiting for the master to open the gate. And, uh, and as the master approaches, he hears his voice and immediately jumps up to open the gate and he pushes with all his weight. With all his might, but it was a humid day and the gate was wooden and it's swollen shut and he couldn't get the gate open with his strength so the master has to lay his strength in with the servant's strength and together the gate opens. Is that a disobedient servant? Because he didn't perform his task well? Well, in our life journey, you will find there are many things that you in your strength will never be able to perform on your own. You will always need the strength. But typically you will need the strength of God in you to fulfill the task well and if your heart is in the right mode then god will you will be open to god's assistance in that journey in that application sunday's last there was a question wendell
3: we also have to recognize that people may be honest and sincere in going the wrong direction and they will also reap the natural results of going that wrong direction. Thank
0: you for that clarification. If that's so true, Paul, prior to his Damascus road experience, you know, was was, you know, motivated with zeal for God's cause, but he was on the wrong path. Okay, so that that's a thank you for that clarification. Uh in Sunday's lesson, the first paragraph it says Revelation 1:1 states the title of the book as the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation comes from the Greek word apokalupsis a, uh, apocalypse, basically in English, which means uncovering or unveiling. The apocalypse is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is both from Jesus and about Him. While it came from God through Jesus Christ, the book testifies that Jesus also is the focus of its contents. The apocalypse is the self revelation, is His self revelation to His people and an expression of His care for them. So, a couple of questions. Why would Jesus need To reveal himself. Has Jesus been hidden. From our understanding. How and why. Has Jesus been hidden. How and why. Why is to obstruct our salvation. How Um, does Jesus want to remain hidden. What do you think keeps Jesus from greater revelations of himself. To his church, to his people, to us today? What, what keeps him from that?
3: the lies
0: of Satan. The lies of Satan? That's part of it. Is that the only part of it? Yeah. Yes. I think
4: people are, are very much governed by theories and systems of thinking, like theologies and the like. You know, and For a book to be a revelation of Jesus by a prophet that is Christ is working directly through it takes away all that subjectivity stuff.
3: We have authoritative
4: revelation here, and to me that's important, because we can come up with all kinds of ideas about Jesus on our own, but it's best to hear what Jesus says about himself, and that's what the book is, it's an unveiling, that comes from God through him, John.
0: Was the message of revelation by Jesus through the prophet for the people of John's day only, or perhaps even more for the people in the end of time, today? For all time. For all time. Would that mean then, if if it in fact I agree that it was for us today too, that Jesus foreknew that before his second coming, he would not be understood accurately by the people who take his name. And he gave a revelation of himself for the people at the end of time to clarify his true nature, his true character, his true methods, because another version of Christianity had become popular. Is that possible?
1: He had already fully revealed himself and his father in the crucifixion. And, but you're right. He knew that a counterattack would come and infect believers after that revelation on Calvary that would need to be, need to be addressed for future generations.
0: And Paul talked about that in Thessalonians, a man of sin will arise and set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Uh, That that this this distorted view would would be the predominant view. Yes.
4: Like the Gospel of John, Revelation comes at the time when Gnosticism was coming to life, which was that first attack on on Christianity. For a couple hundred years, it's positive there were more Gnostics than there were Christians who believed in their Bibles. And, And what I like about this is that Gnostics believed that truth came from within you, that, it, that you discovered it within yourself. And the fact that a revelation would come from God to us automatically goes against that, that whole Gnostic milieu that was trying to take over Christianity in the first 200 years. So it's, you know, it, it speaks to that time quickly and to all time. It, it, it's, it helps to solidify the apostolic teaching in, of the first century shortly after John's death, is what I think, as well as for the end. I'm not trying to say that, but... It, 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 this, with the Gospel of John, directly meets that coming attack of Gnosticism in the second, third centuries. It's one of the things that does it.
0: Did, do we find that in the world today there are many religions and religious people who have a view of God that is more like what Satan represents him to be than what Jesus represented him to be? Mm-hmm. W- w- would you. Did, did Paul say that at the end of. Time, writing to Timothy, in Second Timothy, that, that in, the, in the last days, people would be lovers of themselves, they would have all these characteristics of self-centeredness and exploitation and violence and, and unruliness, but they would have a form of godliness denying the power thereof. That, that's the end of time. Would, would, would Jesus incorporate a revelation that not only deals with Gnosticism in the first century, but also is a revelation that's designed to help the people at the end of time?
2: In Isaiah 53... Even in Isaiah, it predicted we would misunderstand him and his mission when it said, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed.
0: So your understanding of what that is saying is?
2: That we would misinterpret the whole, of his mission. We would misinterpret why he had to die. We think
0: specifically God. misinterpret in what way?
2: That God is needing to be appeased by the death of Jesus instead of the healing aspect of, it, of the whole.
0: Thing. So, so read the first verse you read again. Notice what it says.
2: Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God.
0: It's up right there. I think that is the real, one of the linchpins of the misunderstanding, that he took up our infirmities, our scars, he took up our iniquity, our sinful condition, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, yet we misunderstood his mission and thought that God was the one punishing or executing or you know pouring out you know, some, some vengeful justice upon his son. I think that's exactly what the, the Christian world is, is still teaches today. And I'm going to suggest to you that that view is the reason the gospel hasn't gone to the world and why Christ hasn't returned. Christ is waiting for a people to come and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that it is, which is not a dictator who has to use power to punish disobedience, but is a creator who's working through Christ to heal those who are dying, dead in trespasses dying of their terminal condition. And as long as we teach the other, then the whole thing we're looking for is something to be done to God to protect us from him because he'll punish us if, if it's not done right versus praying that God through his agencies like David of old will see what's wrong in me, search me and see the wicked way and create a new heart in me. Which is the real prayer that God is waiting for a people to take a message that results in their transformation. It's because when he comes, the Bible describes something very powerful. When he comes, we will see him face to face, for we shall be like him. him. Not we will be declared to be like him even though we're not. Which is the penal lie. Monday's lesson. It asks the question: What is the purpose of Bible prophecy? Its prime purpose. A lot of, lot of. There can be more than one purpose, but prime purpose. In the second paragraph, the lesson says the primary purpose of biblical prophecy is to assure us that no matter what the future brings, God is in control. Revelation does not just does just that. It assures us that Jesus is with His people throughout this world's history and its alarming final events. Question: In control of what? Is God in control of whether a person is saved or not saved? No. no. Why, not? Why not? If salvation is a legal problem that requires the ruling authority to legally pardon, like the president of the United States, the president of the United States, can he not pardon anybody he wants legally? <laughs> Does it have to have the the, 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 the person? The, the, no, he, he can set them free. There are people I don't know that, were, that have been in jail for 30, 40 years, and their sentence is up, and when it's time to release them, they don't want to be released. They want to stay in jail because that's where they're comfortable. Do, do they get to stay in jail because that's where they want to stay, or do they get put out on the street? They get put out. So if the problem of the sin problem is really just a legal problem that requires the legal pardon of the sovereign, why doesn't he just pardon everybody? Well, what would happen if he legally pardoned everybody? And everybody, and everybody comes to heaven under a legal pardon. What would be the problem with that? There would be a lot of unhappy folks. <laughs> a lot of unhappy folks. On both changed. sides. On both sides. <laughs> they
2: would not be trustworthy in heaven.
0: They wouldn't be trustworthy in heaven. Would, would sinfulness in them be gone? Or would they still be his rebels? Still be selfish? Still be exploitive? Still be liars, frauds, cheats? Still hate God and want to kill him if they could? You see, this is the problem with the legal view. They don't understand that the real problem in salvation is not a legal problem. It is a transformation of the brokenness in people who are not operating in harmony with God's design. And the real plan of salvation is to fix the brokenness, writing the law in the heart and mind of people. Is God in control of whether a person sins or doesn't sin? We talked about he's not in control of whether they're saved or not. How about is he in control of whether they sin or don't sin? Is he in control of that? Why or why not? Because if he took control of a person to stop them from sin, are they still a free sentient being, or do they become some type of a robot or a puppet? Yeah, and then there's no capacity for love. There's no capacity for trust. Um, is God in control of whether good people get mistreated by bad people? No. 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 Is God in control whether a man rapes a woman or not? No. no. Is God in control of whether a woman gets pregnant or not? No. If you're thinking, wait a second, in the Old Testament, there are a lot of people who prayed and, got, and, and, they, and, they, and they, were, they were barren and, and they had kids. So what did God do there? Intervene with the lead. What did God do, though? God simply healed a physical malady called infertility. That's all he did. Did those people who had their physical malady healed still have to have, make a choice to have relations with their, with their partner, with their spouse? So God did not impregnate them. God only impregnated one person. That was Mary. Everybody else was acting on their own initiative. And they were still free to not have human relationships. And even though their physical malady had been cleared up by God and healed, they still wouldn't have had kids. So God didn't make that choice. Is God in control whether a child is born with some physical defect or not? Then what do you say to these people who get get on TV and and, and talk about how, well, you know, God wanted me to be born blind. Or God wanted me to be born deaf. What do you say to people like that? Did God want that? What kind of God would want that? Yes. Why does it happen then? Why do people get born with various physical maladies of various kinds? Romans chapter 8, Paul says all nature groans under the weight of sin. There are all types of defects in the in the planet now that God never put there. Because of decay, because of entropy, because of atrophy, because of disuse, because of rebellion, because of purposeful contamination and introduction of harm, is God in control of what he does. Yes, yes, he's in control of what he does. Was God in control of whether Nebuchadnezzar threw the three worthies in the fiery furnace? Was he in control of whether he stepped in to prevent them from burning? Yes, see the difference there. So with all this in mind, what's the purpose of Bible prophecy? To give us assurance that God's in control. In control of what? What's he in control of? I think it's to teach us something. That, number one, God is in control of himself. Number two, he's in control of his design laws. He sustains all of reality, and he works through human history to bring about an eternal outcome. And he's never caught by surprise. God never goes, oh, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> that never happens for God. But then if that's true, let's consider a couple prophecies in the Old Testament. You remember the prophecy of the multi-metal image and the Beast of Daniel? which describes the rise and falls of nations, right? These are prophecies. Do these prophecies mean that God caused these nations to rise and fall and God wanted the wars to happen or simply that God foresaw what they would do? Which, which way do you understand that? That he caused it to be this way? He wanted the millions of people to go to war and slaughter each other in, in war? Or he saw what would happen and foretold it? He knew what was going to happen, but that didn't mean he wanted it to be that way or caused it to be that way. Okay, well then, when God gives a conditional prophecy for the prosperity of Israel, you know what I'm talking about in the Old Testament, a lot of prophecies that were conditional, what does that reveal? I'm going to throw some possibilities at you that some people suggest. Does it reveal that God didn't really know what was going to happen? He was covering his bases. He knew the possibilities that it could go this way, or they could go this way, and I'll give a prophecy for either way. I got my bases covered, so I'll look good. This is what some people argue it's called open theism. He doesn't really know until we make our choices. Or does it reveal that God revealed to the people the two possible paths that they could choose? Just like you might say to a person at a fork in the geographic road, well, if you take the fork to the left, you'll end up in this city. If you take the fork to the right, you'll end up in this city. And you're simply giving them information to influence, and you might even tell them, and in this city, there's a lot of crime, there's a lot of corruption, it's not safe. In this city, there's happiness, there's health, there's all kinds of good stuff over here. I mean, you're telling them what what the two cities are like if they go to those two places, but then they still make their choice. Was God not giving them a fork in a geographic road, but giving them the fork in the road of time? Telling them how time would unfold for them if they make this decision to go down this path versus if they make this decision to go down that path. And why would he tell them that? Parents, do you ever do that with your kids? Can you predict certain outcomes from your children that if they make certain choices, well, you know, you're free, you're 18 now, you're free to start smoking. But if you do, if you do, You're going to go down a path that's going to, over time, result in health problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can predict certain outcomes, can't you? And so why was God doing this? I think he, this was not an evidence of God not knowing which way they would go. He full well knew which way they would go, and he told them ahead of time so that when they ended up in that bad place, they could look back and say, you know what? God gave us a choice. We didn't have to end up here. We had another place. We had another destination. And we're only here because we didn't take and follow his directions and go down another path. That's why.
2: I find it interesting that with Israel, he said they said, we want a king. He said, no, you don't, because a king will do this, that, and the other bad things. We want a king anyway, because we want to be like the other nations around us. And so what did he do? He helped them pick a king. Even though they went against what he advised them, he helped them do the wrong thing they decided to do.
0: Yep. And they learned. Lesson points out Deuteronomy twenty-nine twenty-nine that the Lord keeps some things secret and asks us, why does the Lord keep secrets from us? Any thoughts on that?
3: Christ told his disciples, there's many more things I'd like to tell you, but
0: you can't handle it. John sixteen twelve. That's where he's quoting. John sixteen twelve. I much to tell you, you, can't bear it. So Does God keep things secret because he wants us ignorant? That's why. Or because of either our lack of insight, capacity to handle the information, or we would be injured with the information, would harm us. (laughs) Like tree in the garden. (laughs) Do you ever keep things from your children? (laughs) And what would be the reasons? Did you ever keep things from your kids to protect them? Think about the knowledge we don't share at certain ages. There's certain knowledge we don't share. They can't handle it. It would hurt them. Because they're too immature to understand that they wouldn't comprehend it anyway. How about this one, though? Do we ever hold information from our children out of embarrassment, guilt, or shame, fear that our children might reject us if they knew? Do humans ever do that? I can tell you, God never does that. (laughs) That's never a reason God withholds information. But he may hold, and he does withhold information because we can't comprehend it, or we would misuse it and hurt ourselves with it. Tuesday's lesson. The lesson emphasizes that Revelation is as much, and much of the Bible prophecy is symbolic in nature. And understand what that means, symbolic in nature. So consider the letters T-R-E-E. Those letters, if I had them written up here. They are a symbolic representation of a tree. They are not a tree. If you would plant those letters in your lawn and go out to get fruit, you would have problems. They're a symbolic representation. And when you read scripture, you're reading the letters, which are symbols that are now in symbolic representation, representing another symbol that represents something else. So you read about a lamb, L-A-M-B, lamb. The letters represent the lamb, and the lamb is a symbol, well, it's a little animal, but in Bible prophecy, it's a symbolic representation of Jesus. The problem with much of Bible prophecy is determining what the symbol actually represents. And some symbols can represent more than one thing. For instance, the serpent typically most of the time represents, but when they put the brass serpent on the pole and they held it up, what's the serpent representing there? Christ, Yeah, you see this through Scripture all the time.
4: The
0: Lucifer represents... Oh, yeah, somebody said lion. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom may devour, but Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then Lucifer means light-bearer, and in Peter, Jesus has that same name, Phosphorus in Greek, in the Latin it's Lucifer. He's the light-bearer, the one who bears the, the light to the world. We see that these symbols can be used in more than one place. So that's even more confusing, isn't it? But that shouldn't really confuse you because words are symbols and words can have more than one meaning. You know the example I've given many times and it's getting old, but I'll give it again because I can't think of another one right now. I got a frog in my throat. Does that mean I'm eating amphibians? (laughs) No, see the word frog has more than one meaning. These symbols can have more than one meaning, but if you get locked into one and you don't have flexibility to see what it might mean, then it, you can... And so there's problems. What is the danger in failing to take a symbol symbolically? What's the danger? Lies. Lies, okay, confusion, misunderstanding, false conclusions, right? Uh, what's the danger in misinterpreting the meaning? So it's, it's it's not we're just taking it literally, we're just actually take it symbolically, but we misapply and get a, a misunderstanding of what it means. Let's let's look at some examples of of misapplying the meaning or taking something literally that shouldn't be taken literally. The description of fire as combustion rather than the fire of God's life-giving glory, infinite truth, and love. The Ancient of Days takes his seat and rivers of fire come out from before him and 10,000 times 10,000 stand in this fire. Or... Hebrews twelve twenty our God is a consuming. consuming fire, and then in Nadab and Abihu takes unauthorized fire and for the Lord and fire came out from the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Next verse the cousins carry them out still in their tunics. Now if I hit you with a flamethrower and burn you till you die, will you still be in your clothes when I'm done? See this idea. Most people read fire and the fire that consumes sin. The fires that people call the fires of hell, the fires of the brimstone, and so forth, they think of it as combustion, and they draw terribly wrong conclusions about it. Yes, Linda.
2: The three Hebrews in the fiery furnace, I find it really interesting. I mean, that was an actual fire, and yet Jesus had his own fire in there, apparently. But the only two things that were actually destroyed by the fire were the things that, the ropes that bound them, the things that bound the people, and the people who threw them in. Okay. They were the only things destroyed by the actual fire, not the
0: people. And that fire. fire that was actual fire was kindled by? God or man. Men. Get your mind around that. We can make combustion. We can make nuclear explosions. We cannot make divine fire. We cannot make fire from God's presence. When Moses came off the mountain after 40 days in God's presence, what's his face doing? Did Moses have third-degree burns? What did the children of Israel do when they saw his face? What did they experience? Yes, he asked them to cover. They wanted to cover Why? Because it was pleasant and enjoyable for them? It caused them agony and suffering. They're suffering because there's something harmful in the fire? See, when you an evidence based thinker, you can see evidences all over Scripture that the fire is not harmful. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's still in a human body that's subject to death because it dies in a short while. That body dies. But he's brighter than the sun. Did this mortal body that he still possessed at that moment get harmed by that fire? No, the fire is not harmful. Sin is harmful. Sin is harmful.
1: Peter, James, and John were not arguing about that either. Uh, and neither and, was and, and uh, both, and Moses of, or, yeah, or Elijah. None of them. Well, I'm talking about the apostles because if you look down through short history, they had yet to be converted. Peter was yet to deny his Savior, and James and John and their mother were arguing about who would be first in the kingdoms. The heart that's on the pathway to conversion is still safe in the fire. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that Shadrach,
0: Meshach, and Abednego in Jesus' presence there, yes. So this is, again, the point, but when you misunderstand the symbol of fire and you apply it to human combustion, then you get human conclusions and you conclude that God uses flamethrowers like human beings do rather than these are the fires that are to consume sin. To sin, wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. And sin is not made out of molecules. Sin has its roots. Remember the roots of sin. Satan is the father of lies. And so lies are the root of sin and selfishness. What is it that burns out a lie? Truth. And what is it that burns out selfishness? Love. Love and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And at Pentecost, they saw two streams of fire, the fires of truth and love. This is the infinite God who unveils himself at one point. But the whole earth right now can't stand to be in his presence. And so we're in an artificial bubble of reality that's shielded from the unveiled glory of God. But one day, read Revelation, we're in Revelation. God's going to come and there'll be no need for the sun and moon to light the place because God's presence, well, we will live in that unveiled glory. We will be transformed. We will radiated ourselves. So that's one, fire. How about, t- here's another one that we misapply. Taking the war and battle descriptions of scripture, like the battle of Armageddon, as literal physical battles rather than mental battles over ideas and trust and loyalty. This has never been a battle over who has more power. God could cast out his enemies as easy as one, cast a pebble to the ground. It's never a power battle. That's why it says in Corinthians. We don't wage wars the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. And notice what we're demolishing with the divine power weapons arguments and pretension that set themselves up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. That's the real battle for the hearts and minds of intelligent beings. And so get devil tricks us to get us to think war and battle is going to be all the Russia is going to come down and the Chinese are going to come over and America is going to come over and have a big battle in the middle East. I'm not saying there may not be, I mean, humans have been at war and Jesus said, there'll be wars; nations will ride against nation. That's going to happen, but that's not the ultimate battle the ultimate battle, those are all just things that the devil uses to confuse people. What about this one? Taking the vials of God's wrath as plagues that literally come out from God rather than what happens when God releases what he's been holding back. Revelation 7, an angel comes from heaven telling the angels of the four winds, Hold, hold, hold. And the the angels with the four winds have been given power to harm the land and the sea and the trees. And what's their power? How do they do it? By letting go what they're holding back. That's how. But when we take it directly from God, then God is the one we need to be protected from. Well, why would God loosen his grip? Why would he let go? Why would he withdraw his protective presence from earth? On earth, where's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth? Hearts and, minds. and does the Holy Spirit force himself into human hearts? Or does he stand at the door and knock, and anyone opens the door, he comes in? So what happens on earth when billions and billions of humans permanently close their heart to God? He slowly withdraws. And his controlling restraint is slowly removed, and Satan gets more and more freedom on this planet to do evil. And that's what's being described. What about the the description of souls under the altar as, and taking that as living disembodied intelligences rather than as symbolic representations of beings who have lived and their life history is screaming out for resurrection and setting the universe right? Lesson uh, in the third paragraph states, we must be careful not to impose on the text a meaning that comes out of human imagination or the current meaning of those symbols in our culture. Do you agree that when we read Revelation, we have to resist just taking a cultural meaning or what our own imaginations create? We need to anchor these interpretations in Scripture. we agree with that? So does that apply only to the physical Symbolic representations like trees, beasts, rivers, angels, lamps, altars, the physical stuff. Is that, it only apply to that? Or does that principle also apply to the ideas, concepts, and actions? First one, wrath and anger. Do we apply the modern human understanding of what wrath is and anger? Or realize these terms need to be applied as the Bible describes them. Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness, the men who suppress truth by their wickedness. And then in verse 24, 26, and 28, Paul shows the action of God's wrath. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. Do we apply the biblical definition of wrath, or do we use the human definition that God uses power to inflict harm? What about Atonement. Do we apply the modern meaning of the word, appeasement, payment of some kind, to make amends in some way? Or do we realize that in the biblical framework, it means unifying, bringing at odds back into one mint, reconciliation, making at one again? And if that's the meaning, then do we ask the question, okay, in, in our relation with God, we are clearly severed from our intimacies with him by sin in our lives. What is it that's necessary to bring us back into one mint? Does God need to be fixed or changed in some way? You see, so when when Adam sinned, and you ask the question, when Adam sinned in Eden, did God get changed? Did God's law get changed? Did the condition of Adam and Eve get changed? So then, if we're going to have oneness with God again, nothing needs to happen with him. He's perfect. He changes not. Nothing needs to happen with his law. His law is perfect. Something has to change in us to put us back in harmony with God. So any atonement model that has action working on God to adjust God, fix God, appease God, propitiate God, to somehow deal with God and fixing him in some way is a lie. All the action that God has been working through Christ in his spirit has been designed to fix the brokenness in humankind to bring us back into oneness with him. Yes,
2: and this was uh, shown in the sanctuary service, where the ark was actually made out of wood. Most of the thing, in the most holy place, most everything was pure gold, except for that the box was wood, covered with gold. But the mercy seat on top of it was pure gold, and then God dwelled above that, showing that we needed that the gold to be infused into us and connected back to God by Jesus, who represents the mercy seat of pure gold. So I find it interesting that it's the only thing in the, in the most holy place that isn't pure gold, that is part of the service. That's us needing to be fixed, not God needing to be fixed.
0: In the acacia wood, the porous wood was symbolic representative defects, that we're filled by the gold, which is the righteous and per- perfect character of Christ. It fills and heals all the defects, bringing us back into perfect righteousness. So I think you're exactly symbolic representation, again, symbols representing something else, that box representing the heart of the saved, remember what three things went in the box? Three things in the box. The law, what? The bowl of manna. The bowl of manna and? And do you remember they went in, in an order? So what went in first? The manna. The manna went in first. And what's the manna symbolic of? Yes, of Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven, the bread that's come down. And so first in the sinful human heart, the first thing in our salvation process is we have to partake of Jesus. Some truth, some aspect of him has to win us over. And so we see Jesus. We eat his flesh, drink his blood, as the, as the metaphor says. But, but we partake of Jesus, and that wins us to trust. And in trust, we open the heart. And the second thing goes in the box was the law. And what, and once we're in a trust relation with God, what's the new covenant? I will write my law on your hearts and minds. And this law is not a list of rules. God's law is the law of love and it's the protocol upon which He's constructed life to operate. And thus, those of us who have partaken of Christ and been one to trust and open the heart and have His living law written on our hearts, then the third thing that goes in, Aaron's dead stick or rod that became alive and brought forth fruit. We which are dead in trespass and sin bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. We're one, we're restored back to life in God's kingdom again. And that's the symbolic. So you're exactly right. The symbols represent the only thing that needs to be fixed for atonement is sinful human beings. God doesn't need fixing, nor does his law. So all this propitiation stuff that's talked about and defined in ways that it's a payment made to God in some legal way, it's a lie, and it obstructs the church from finishing its work to prepare the world for Christ to return. Yes?
3: We don't have to fix God. We don't have to fix anything that he owns. There's not a book that has to be fixed. Okay. So sometimes people say, oh, yes, we don't have to fix God, but he has these books that need to be fixed.
0: Okay. And so what are in the books? The heavenly books, what's in them? So I would I would encourage you at this point to most simply, way to remember what's in the books, is consider them through design law, making them medical health records of each person. And what's in the health record or medical record of each person? Your actual condition. That would also be diagnostic, showing what the MRI of the soul does, which is the Ten Commandments, and it shows all the sins or the defects in the character that's written in the books. But if you were sick with some terminal disease, and you'd gone to a physician that has the remedy, and you'd partake in the remedy, you could look in the books, and you could see, hey, there's this point in time this person was really sick, but hey, guess what? Since this point in time, they've partaken the remedy, and their cancer or sin has gone into remission. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Our cancerous or sinful or selfish hearts remit back to God's original design. And so the heavenly records show the reality of our individualities. Our characters are soared and safely recorded there. And those who have partaken of Christ, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sinful wickedness. Because why? Because we partaken of Christ and the perfection of Christ has been restored within us. We've been healed and renewed. And the records show that. So these are records of reality, not records of a list of do's and don'ts or deeds or behaviors. They're the actual condition of each person. What about uh, justification? Do we apply the modern meaning in some legal declaration way? Or do we realize it's actual meaning? And what does justification actually mean? To set right what's wrong. To put it right. When you justify your margins, you're setting what's out of line, in line. You're actually moving something. Now, what needs to be moved for us to be put right? Does God need to be moved? We need to be moved. And so the justification is inside of each one of us, God, through his spirit, setting right the brokenness, the fear, the selfishness, the shame, the guilt. You could call that a cleansing. You could call that a cleansing of the sanctuary. Know ye not that ye are a temple of God, and God dwells in you by his spirit? So how much scripture and prophecy are misunderstood because we misunderstand the terms? So is there a key that can be used as a key to if you understand the key, and you then run all your prophecies through the key, it can give you accurate understandings of the prophecies? Well, listen to this. This is a book called Christ's Object Lessons, page 133. Two paragraphs. <coughs> Christ's object lessons. The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Remember, the Jewish economy is another deeply symbolic system that much of Bible prophecy draws from. And, And this author in the next paragraph connects the Jewish economy with actual Bible prophecy. Truths, vast and profound, are shadowed forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are open to the understanding. Far more than we do, it is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. We are to comprehend the deep things of God. Angels desire to look into the truths that are revealed to the people who, with contrite hearts, are searching the Word of God and praying for greater lengths and breadths and depths and heights of the knowledge which He alone can give. As we near, next paragraph, as we near the close of this world's history, the prophecies relating to the last days especially demand our study. The last book of the New Testament scripture is full of truth that we need to understand. Satan has blinded the minds of many so that they have been glad of any excuse for not making the revelation their study. What is the key? The gospel is the key. And I want to finish up with, go ahead, Wendell, finish up with the question, what's the gospel? Because if you don't know the gospel, you'll... Never get the, 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 the interpretations right.
3: Christ and his life needs to make our interpretation of the Old Testament accurate. The Old Testament is not pointing toward the Christ. Christ is
0: pointing toward the Old Testament. Okay, beautifully said. So then, what's the gospel? If gospel's the key, what is the gospel? How do you describe it? good news about God. He says the good news about God. You say God is love. I think those are synonymous. Any other, any other descriptions of the gospel?
4: Christ died for our sins. is of first importance, Paul says, in the gospel. He was raised for our justification. So Paul affirms that as the apostolic gospel.
0: I guess it depends on what law lens you interpret that through. I don't disagree with that at all, because that's absolutely true. But do we interpret that meaning through an imperial law lens, that to die for our sins means someone had to die to pay a legal penalty in order for the ruling authority to declare us to be righteous even though we're not? Or do we interpret it through the design law lens, which means that we were out of harmony with God and Christ died in order to fix what's broken in us to restore us to righteousness?
4: A biblical lens, Romans 4, to 25 says, it will be reckoned to us. It was reckoned to Abraham. He was an example. He was raised for our justification.
0: And so the reckoning.
4: So, so Paul in Romans 4 speaks of reckoning in legal terms, and thus he says, for our justification. In justification in Greek, the word used there means legal acquittal. That's the etymological meaning of that word.
0: So in Romans 4, let's stick with Romans 4 for a minute. The, first off, the word reckoned in the Greek, if you actually look it up, means the reality of what actually exists. If a banker reckons there is $4 in his account, it's because there's actually $4 in his account. You can't reckon what is not true. In that word, so we can't have this reckoning something that isn't already true. Second question: Which came first in the text? Go back and read the text.
4: I have.
0: Wh- which came first? Abraham's change of heart or God's reckoning him to be righteous?
4: What's significant? No,
0: no, no. That's the, this is the significance.
4: What's you see, significant is Romans four says he's an example for all those who be saved. He believed God; it was reckoned to him as righteousness.
0: So, which came first? His belief in God or his reckoning? It. So the natural heart is what? Enmity to God. And so notice that the reckoning, or the reckoning, God's recognition or reckoning was only reckoning the reality that already happened in Abraham's life. i
4: quoting Genesis, where it means to account, it means to reckon, it means to thank. God, God thanks it to him as righteousness.
0: Because he had already been set right with God in his heart. So that's predestination, though,
4: that you're talking about. No. If you're playing two sides of the same coin. You're saying that it didn't exist before he believed God, but it did. That's predestination.
0: What, what existed before he believed God?
4: So you said that, okay, you're saying that belief in God came first, which is correct. Mm-hmm. Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Then you say the reckoned mean that existed before he believed God.
0: I didn't say that. Let me explain what I'm saying. The natural human heart, according to Bible, is enmity to God. We don't trust him. We're not reconciled to him. Abraham's heart changed from distrust to trust. He came to believe God after his heart changed, God reckoned or recognized or accounted that his heart was now set right with God. He's justified because his heart had been set right. It had already happened. It
4: says, as righteousness. He counted it to him as righteousness.
0: Because it was righteous.
4: Look at the next storyline. He's still struggling. Abraham is not home yet. He's not fully sanctified. God reckons it to him as righteousness at the beginning of his journey. Acceptance occurs when he believes. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans 4, is that when we accept Christ, we, we are reckoned righteous as Abraham was reckoned righteous. I mean, I, I never understood that until I had to go to court. When I went to court, and I've had to struggle for our church's right to build, I came to appreciate this language in Romans, because Paul persistently uses this legal language in the book of Romans. And, and it's because when you are not guilty, and you're declared not guilty by a judge, it really does matter in your heart. It matters in your experience. What the judge thinks matters, not just what you think. And when he says you're not guilty, you're not. And so to be reckoned righteous is legal, but it's also personal. You, you can't just cut the two apart and say one works, the other doesn't.
1: So the, so the
0: real question personal comes... The judge says not
4: guilty, ha- legally not guilty, and it makes a difference in your heart too.
0: And I appreciate that, and it helps expose one of the problems the church struggles with. And that is we continue to try to understand God's government through the lens of human analogies and human law. God's government does not operate like human law, and so human courtroom analogies always demean the divine government and bring us down to an understanding that's wrong. Always. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, a power would arise to seek to change God's law. We cannot change God's law. We can only change the way we conceive of God's law. And how has God's law changed in the minds of human beings? It was changed by getting people to believe it was imperialistic or rules made up that require enforcement like human law. That's why they changed the Sabbath because you can change an imperialistic legislated law. They didn't vote to change the law of gravity or the law of respiration or the laws of health or the laws of physics because they recognize those types of laws cannot be changed by legislation. And you cannot change God's laws either because they are the laws upon which reality are built. And the Christ object lesson statement here that I was about to read says this about the gospel. No man can rightly present the law of God without the gospel, or the gospel without the law. The law is the gospel embodied, and the gospel is the law unfolded. The law is the root, and the gospel is the fragrant blossoms the fruit, which it bears. Why? Well, let me read you this quote, Education, page 99. The same power that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws that guide alike the star... And the atom control human life. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of life to the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has the jurisdiction of the soul. From him all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation, the condition is the same." A life sustained by receiving the life of God, a life exercised in harmony with the creator's will to transgress his law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself out of harmony with the universe to introduce discord, anarchy, and ruin. I don't know how you could say it more clearly, the the, the comparisons and the inclusion of the moral law with the laws upon which all reality are built. That's God's law. Human beings can't make space-time, energy, life matter. So what we do is we make up rules that we have to then enforce by judicial oversight. That's Romanism. That's imperialism. That's the infection to the church. That's the wine of Babylon. And as as soon as our, as long as our church continues to teach this penal substitutionary lie, we will never finish the work that the church was called into existence to do. The entire penal substitution theology, notice, I believe in substitutionary atonement. I don't believe in penal substitutionary atonement. I believe in the biblical substitution, which is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's substitution. So that we might become the righteousness of God, not be declared the righteousness of God, even though we're not, which is what the penal substitution lie teaches. And so it is really a good news message that through the work of Jesus Christ and what God has done, we can be restored to actual righteousness not simply declared to be such when it's not so. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the God of creation, the God who built all reality to operate in harmony with you. And your laws are the laws upon which reality exists. We ask that your spirit of love and truth will be poured out and right into our inmost being your character of love, your design, your laws, your methods, and purge from us all the things of selfishness in the world so that we can go out and really reflect you rightly and bring this world to a place where you can come back. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.